It's good to be back in uh, in this room. Uh, it's good for I'm, I'm <laughs> I enjoy being here. This is good uh, until we move into um, into our new building. Uh, this is home, and I like it, and I missed it, and uh, I know some of us have also. Um, if I can uh, just give you a, a brief glimpse into what uh, some of the conversations I have during the week. There's um, this pretty typical and common uh, common conversation that I have with people. Usually, begin on a Sunday or. Uh, Sunday after service or sometime uh, during the week where I get a message or a text or something like that, an email, and someone will say, hey, can we meet up? I've got some things I want to talk about today. I want to talk about with you some things I want to share. Uh, so I'll say, okay, and we'll meet up usually at a Panera on uh, on, on a uh, Popka Vineland or at a Starbucks up here in Winter Garden Village or somewhere. We'll, we'll meet up and we'll talk. And conversation usually begins with some small talk. They're talking about things, how's life, all that stuff. And and then the, the, the kind of the weight of urgency uh, – presses into that conversation. So I'll say, so what's going on? How are you doing? And that's when the tenor of the conversation begins to change. And they say, well, not doing so well. And then they'll begin to talk about some sin that they've committed, some sin that they're struggling with, some besetting sin that has been haunting them and hounding them for weeks or months or even years. They'll talk about some one act of, of sinful desire that did something that messed up their something or other and they'll feel like all these and they're feeling the weight of all of that stuff and the result of that and the consequence of that is that they've been hurt and other people have been hurt as a result and the question that they're constantly asking is can i be restored to a right relationship with god again Is it possible for me to get back into the graces of God? Is it possible for me to have a relationship with God the way that it was a long time ago? Can I be restored to that place? And I know that it's not just one or two people because this is a constant conversation that I have throughout the weeks. Ezra, the book of Ezra, is a book all about restoration. It's a book that asks and answers that question, can the people of God be restored after all of the mistakes and all of the failures and all of the sin and all of the pain and all of the brokenness, all the destruction, all the devastation that their sinful choices have brought upon themselves and upon other people? Can they be restored? Is restoration possible? So for everyone who feels like, I need to be restored, I need restoration, I'm looking at my life and I need to be restored to a right place with God, then the book of Ezra is an amazing, is an amazing and powerful book for us. Let me set the table because I know that some of us in here are new. We've been going through for about 45, 44 weeks, starting from Genesis, and we're now in, uh, we're in the middle of the prophets. We haven't been going uh, in, in biblical order per se, but we've been going chronologically to try and tell the story of Scripture and to show that all of this is all about Jesus. We've seen that um, up until this point in time. And now we're at the point in, in, in the Bible where Ezra rises to the scene. So what's been happening, if you, if you kind of follow the, the trajectory of Scripture, you know that the kingdom of Israel began about, oh, about 1,000 B.C. with a man named uh, King Saul and David and Solomon, three pretty good kings. And then after that, there was a civil war that destroyed and ripped the kingdom into two. There were 10 tribes in the north called Israel, and there were two tribes in the south called Judah. And In the midst of that civil war, in the midst of that divide, they kept on sinning, kept on ignoring the callings and the teachings and the words of the prophets. And they kept on ignoring the prophets. And so judgment came first to the northern kingdom through the Assyrian Empire 
In 722 BC, the Assyrians attacked the northern kingdom and they fell and they were taken away. They called them the 10 lost tribes. And then the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 BC, they were overtaken by the Babylonian empire. Babylon took them and they took these people of Israel and they brought them into exile and they were living in the land of Babylon. Okay, so here they are as the the God-fearing people stripped from everything that they knew, their homes, their land, the temple, their worship, their religion, everything, and they've been taken away from all that, and they're living now in Babylon. Okay, 586 B.C., that happens. And so for many, many years, okay, many, many years, the people of God are living as foreigners in exile in Babylon. This is the darkest point in the history of the Jewish race. Okay, so from 606 until 586, there are three different deportations where they're taken into Babylon. So it's at that point in time, as they're hanging out and they're living there, and uh, their world has been completely flipped apart, flipped upside down. In 539, 540 B.C., the Persian Empire overtakes Babylon. Okay, we're gonna, if you don't like history, this is going to be a lot of stuff, but we're getting to the good stuff. About 545, 39 B.C., the Persian Empire overtakes Babylon, and there's a king named Cyrus who comes to power, and he's ruling over that empire. At that point, 539 B.C., he issues an edict, and he says, okay, people of Israel, people of Judah, Jewish people, you guys are free to go back to your hometown. Go back to your land and settle in there. The reason being is because he believed that happy subjects are peaceful subjects. So they're still under his rule, under his reign, but we'll let you go back home 900 miles. And so into this context, Ezra is written. Ezra is divided neatly into two parts. There are two restorations that happen. First, beginning in 539 B.C., there's a prince from the kingly line named Zerubbabel, okay, Zerubbabel, he takes this first group of of Jewish people and leads them back into Judah where they would restore and rebuild the temple. Okay, this is the first restoration. Seventy years later, Ezra, for whom the book was written, the writer of this book, Ezra would rise up. He was a priest and he would lead the second group back and they would restore the hearts of the people. Okay, chapters one through six, Zerubbabel. Restoring the temple, chapter 7 through 10, Ezra, restoring the hearts of the people. About 458 B.C. It was around this time, incidentally, that Ezra lived, that in India, there was a man named Siddhartha Gautama. Does that name ring a bell to anyone? The one who founded Buddhism, the Buddha, was living in India at that same time that Ezra was ministering, that Ezra was leading his reforms. At the same time, Socrates in Greece was philosophizing and coming up with all of these great things. And in China, Confucius was saying his fortune cookie sayings in China, all at the same time that Ezra was rising to power, rising to uh, do his ministry on 458 B.C. Okay, so we're going to look at restoration. Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. We're going to look at three thoughts as it relates to restoration. Answer the question, can we be restored? Uh, first thing, and I'll give you our, our, our thought, and then we'll look into the word. First thing is that restoration requires us getting up from where we are. Okay. It requires us getting up from where we are. So here you've got the people of Israel, the people, the Jewish people, right? People of Judah, and spiritually, 
They've been away from their home, some of them 70 years, some of them 50 years, depending on when they were deported. And they're longing for restoration. Now, I have to say, if we look at today, in our day, in our time, in our context, in our congregation, a lot of us, I would say a lot of us desire and long for spiritual restoration. But the sadder reality is that very few of us experience it. Why? I'll tell you why. Ezra chapter 1, look at what it says. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and put it in writing. Is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you. May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who's in Jerusalem. Okay, so you've got, for the Jewish people, a dream come true. Can you imagine, for 50 years, okay, there's been no place of worship in Babylon. There's no temple, there's no altar, there's none of this stuff. So here you are in Babylon, longing for, thinking of, right, no word of God, Thinking of a better day, the days when mom and dad used to tell us, grandparents used to tell us about the teachings of God, when there was revival, when there was, you know, the worship of God was, was full and vibrant, all these things. And here they are in spiritual desolation, a wasteland. And so for the first time in 70 years, first time in 50 years, depending again on, on, on how old they are and when they were deported, for the first time, there's a glimmer of hope. The king says, you can go back to your hometown, and you can go back and worship. This is a spiritual goldmine. So some of us, however you are, 12 years old, okay, the youngest in here, 12 years old, can you imagine from here until you're 60 years old, from, from this day forward, you're, you're taken into a foreign land and you will never worship like this ever again. You're 30 years old until you're 80, waiting, 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 and finally, finally, the king of that land says you can go back to your church and worship. Go back to your place in worship. And this is the opportunity given to the people of God. Two million, three million Jews. But look at, this is chapter 2, verse 64. This is the result. The whole company that went back to Ju- Judah, the whole company numbered 42,360 besides their 7,337 men servants and maidservants they also had 200 men and women singers right, to sing, give them background music while they go back. Out of 2 million, 3 million people longing for restoration spiritually, only 50,000 actually get up and go. Why? The same reason why so many of us long for spiritual restoration, but so few of us actually experience it. And we can long for it all we want. But unless we get up and go, it's just going to continually be a wanting in our hearts. It's just going to continually be a long. That's all I want it, but that's it. Why was it for the people of God that they didn't want to get up and go? Well, as they got into Babylon, at first they didn't like it. It was difficult. It was hard. But they realized that we need to make do. We need to make life. We need to set up shop. And that's what they did. 
a very sophisticated city. And so many of them went from being shepherds in Israel to owning businesses in Babylon. They started to make a living for themselves, started making money for themselves. One, uh, one commentator says they went from being sheep keepers to being shopkeepers. And all of a sudden, they became comfortable making money living in Babylon. Now, comfort can be a very dangerous thing, can't it? It's one of the gods of the age, one of the gods of our culture. We long for comfort. Comfort, in one sense, can be a great thing, but the shadow side of everything good, every blessing, there's a curse to it also. One of the most comfortable chairs that you could buy on the market has the label Lazy Boy because they know that comfort and laziness are the same side, are are two opposite sides of the same coin because what is comfort to some can degenerate into laziness for many other people. And even though they longed for spiritual restoration, it was their comfort that kept them from experiencing the renewal, the revival, the restoration that they so deeply longed for in their hearts. I think the same is true for many of us, too. I know how much I long for a deeper relationship with God. What keeps me from it? Sometimes it's my temptation, it's my sin, but more than that, it's my comfort. Because I'm comfortable. When I'm comfortable lying in my bed, my baby could be crying all night long. If I'm comfortable, I ignore the cries of my child. That's bad, isn't it? Some wives are looking at their husbands right now. Okay. But I can also ignore the cries of my own heart because I'm steeped in my own comfort. That sound like you at all? We long for restoration. We look at our life wanting more of God. But restoration is not going to happen unless we get up from where we are. I was talking with someone this week, and they were counseling another person, and they were asking me for advice. What, how would I counsel this person? The person is just steeped in a deep, deep addiction. And they said, what, what, what do I need to say to them? And I said, quite frankly, based on the nature of the addiction and the length of time that that addiction has been going on, this person needs a whole lot more than accountability. This person needs counseling from a biblically-based, spirit-filled counselor who's able to do what you or I are not qualified to do, to lead them out of this by helping them to break the chains that have enslaved them for all of these years. And we don't have the wherewithal, and we don't have the training, we don't have the acumen and skill to do that. You need to refer this person to another to a, to a professional Christian counselor. And I, and I, I have some people, and then the um, person I was talking to said, you know what, they, they won't do it, or they can't do it because it just costs too much. And so this is how I responded based on what someone told me. I said, listen, if that person needs to eat bread and butter for a month to save money in order to fight for their soul, then they better do it. Like they got to do it. Can't live this way. And the person said to me, no, they won't do that because they don't want it that badly. They don't want restoration that badly. They don't want healing that badly. And I felt so sad. 
that person. Restoration begins when we long for restoration more than we're longing for the comforts that we're in. Restoration begins when we long for God more than we're okay with our present situation. But unless it hits that point, we're not going to change. We're not going to be restored. We'll be wanting all of our days until our dying breath. But we're never going to experience that restoration until we actually get up and go. Two million, three million Jewish people longing for restoration, longing for spiritual renewal. But only 50,000 of them actually got up and took that 900-mile trek to go back to their homeland. If you were in Babylon in that day amongst the two, three million, would you go? Because here's our reality. We're living in Babylon now. We are in exile. We're not in Israel anymore. This is not a Christian nation anymore. We're living in enemy territory. We're not at home. Maybe 20 years ago, we could say we're in Israel. Maybe 10 years, maybe even five years ago, we could say we are, but we're not anymore. This is not a God-run nation anymore. To the contrary, contrary to the, the wishes and the desires and the longings of our founding fathers, it's not. We're in Babylon. Will we go back? Do we long for restoration? Because it requires us getting up and going. That's the first thing. Second thing that we see, they braced themselves. They braced themselves for what was to come because they knew it wasn't going to be easy. The second thing that we see is that restoration requires moving towards God despite the distractions. It requires us to move towards God despite all of the distractions in our lives. But as they go back to Judah, okay, what are they going back to? They make this 900-mile journey, and they go to the land that was their home. They go to the temple that was their place of worship, and they find it completely ruined, destroyed. All the home stores have been looted. The temple has been burned, destroyed to the ground. There's nothing but ashes, rubble, a shadow, a trace of what it used to be. A veritable ghost town inhabited by strange people here and there, but completely devastated, ruined. And as they look at that and they look at their mission, go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. They go back to that place. What is the first thing that they do when they get into town? It's a question that we ask a lot at the end of every mission trip. <laughs> We've been away from home for a while. We look at each other. We say, hey, first thing you're going to do when you get home. And there's usually four answers that come to mind for me. Uh, one answer is I, if they've been to the Dominican Republic back in the day, not so much now because they've got toilets, but back in the day when it used to be squatty potty all the time and don't flush, no plumbing, all that stuff, the first answer would be I'm going to go and I'm going to kiss my toilet. That's what a lot of us used to say. going to hug my toilet, say thank you for being so faithful. Well, some people do. second group of people say I, I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to take a nap with my air con- in my air-conditioned home. I'm going to sleep, sleep, sleep until tomorrow. I'm not going to let anyone bother me. The third thing people say, say, I'm going to take a shower. I'm going to take a shower. Oh, my gosh, I've got inches of dirt on me. I've got three days worth of sweat. I haven't washed my hair with wet shampoo in, in days. So I'm going to take a shower. And the fourth thing is they say, I'm going to go eat chicken wings at James' shop. But that's typically, those are the four answers that people give. What's the first thing? Because that, I, I, the reason we ask that question is because it reflects our values, reflects where we are. I'm hungry. That's important to me. I'm dirty. That's important to me. 
I'm going to kiss my mom, kiss my dad, kiss my husband. Kiss. That's important to me. The reason we ask that question is because the first thing we do shows what we value in some sense. It's the first thing that these returning exiles do. Chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came, the Israelites had settled in their towns. People assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josedek, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, remember he's the leader of this group of exiles, son of Shealtiel and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite the fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Now they built the altar on its foundation, sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. What does that mean? The first thing that they do, first thing that they do when they go back, not building the temple, even though the temple is destroyed, it's in ruins. That's the purpose for which they went back, isn't it? It's staring at them in their face. You've got to rebuild me, restore me, make me, make me, all this stuff. But the first thing they do is they built an altar to the Lord God. Why? Because the altar was the centerpiece of worship. The altar is the place in which after years and years and years of living in sin, after years and years and years of not being able to offer sacrifices for the remission of their sin, the altar is a place where fellowship can be restored, where guilt can be removed, where they can get right with God again. And in the midst of all of these urgent needs to set up shop, to get back, to rebuild your home, to rebuild your temple, the first thing that they do is they say, we're going to build our altar because we want to restore fellowship with God. It's the most important thing that needs to be done. And despite all of these people, it says, even though they were afraid of the people around them. It says that in, what verse does it say? Despite the fear of the people's Around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Both the morning and evening sacrifice. The first thing that they wanted to do, in spite of all that was pressing against them, they said, we need to rebuild and restore our relationship with God. Because they reckoned that was the most important thing, was to build, build the altar. As if we want to be restored... If we want to experience spiritual restoration, then we need to make a choice to move towards God despite all of the things that are hindering us from doing that. I had a friend, uh, my best friend, he would wake up every morning and he would say, he would pray this prayer. He said, God, today I want to take 
one step closer to you. When I go to sleep tonight, I want to be closer to you than I am right now. Every day, that was his desire. I want to take one step closer to you, God. Every day, I want to move closer to you. It's a desire of our hearts, isn't it? That I want to love Jesus more tomorrow than I do today. And the day that I die would be the day that I love Jesus more than any other day that I've ever been alive. Is that our desire? To be intentional about that. To push aside distractions in order that we might build our altar as a priority in our lives. When I wake up in the morning, there's a million things that if, if I were just to wake up and, and, and in that place between grogginess and sleep, grogginess and being awake, and I think about all the things on my to-do list, there's so many things that I just want to begin attacking all of these things one by one. But I know that if I don't commit my heart to building an altar before the Lord God first thing when I wake up, then it's going to be very easy for me never to do that during the day. And so the first thing that I want to do when I wake up in the morning, before I look at the apps on my phone, before I read the news, before I check my face, before I do any of that stuff, is I want to make sure that I'm hearing from God and spending time in the Word of God. And a lot of times there are distractions, things that keep me from doing that, keep me from wanting to do that. I sleep and I I share a bed with Elijah. Sometimes he'll wake up in the middle of my reading. And he'll get excited and he'll want to play. He'll want to climb on top of me. He'll want to do something. And so I have to say to him, Elijah, Daddy is reading the Bible right now. He says, reading the Bible? <laughs> like, yeah, reading the Bible. Can you give Daddy a few minutes to finish reading and then I'll hold you and then we can go out and play? And the majority of the time when he's in his sweet mood, he'll say, okay, I'll let you do that. And he'll just sit there and he'll peep over every 30 seconds. Daddy, are you done yet? Say, Elijah, just wait a little bit. But I need that because he needs to understand. And he needs that. Because he needs to understand that he's not more important than God. Because the way that I sometimes raise my children, I raise them to think that they are God. Or at least more important than him. And so they think that I owe them something or that they need to be obeyed no matter what, and they need to learn that they're not. That's not the case. They need to see that daddy, that mommy, that their uncles and aunties love Jesus more than we love them. And so I build my altar because I know, I know if I pick up my phone it's, I'm going to be just going down this rabbit trail of all these different apps and looking at stuff. And then I, so from two years ago, Lent, that was a commitment that I made. I said, God, I'm not going to look at anything on my phone until I spend time with you in the morning. And every year, I'm sorry, every day, the past couple of years, this is what I've been doing. And so, the, I mean, I encourage you to read the Bible like Paul is doing, like we're doing here, instead of reading it off of your phone, because it just takes one email, one text one cacao, one something, notification for your mind to be taken off of the Bible, even though you're looking at the Bible on your phone. There's, see, distractions aren't always sinful things, bad things. It's good things in life. It's urgent things in life. It's these things that demand immediate attention. Things that are saying, you need to deal with me right. There's a temple that's in ruins. The reason they were sent back was to rebuild the temple. You need to tend to me quickly. Hurry, do it now. 
But he's saying the urgent things can wait, but the important things need to be prioritized. The most important thing in restoration is moving towards God, no matter what, to push aside the distractions so that their relationship with God could be made right. And once the altar was built, you're going to see then, starting in chapter 4, they begin building the temple because they understood something. They understood one very crucial piece here. If we want to experience spiritual restoration, it's not just that we built an altar every day, but we need places where we can go and meet with others who are fellowshipping and meeting with God. We need people in our lives that we need to build altars together. We need people in our lives with whom we worship together. See, it says in chapter 4, verse 4, then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Did you know that a lot of times your distraction to moving towards God is going to come in the form of people? Even people within the church, sadly. Even people within the church can often hinder you from seeking God with everything that you have. I'm not talking about Christ followers and Christ disciples and seekers of Christ. I'm just talking about, I'm talking about people who come to church, right? People come to church. Not everyone who comes to church is going to help you to grow. You know this, don't you? Now, you have to be very careful about the people that you're spending time with. And if you're spending time with a lot of people who don't lead you to Christ, then all the more reason why you need to find yourself in communities of people who are following Christ, who are countering these voices that are telling you it's not worth it to follow him. It's not worth it to restore. It's not worth it to rebuild. Just go do your own thing and look out for yourself. You need voices that are going to counteract the voices of the world that are seeking to oppose the restoration project that God is wanting to do in your life. That's why we need house church. That's why we need to come together. That's why Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, do not give up meeting together as some have become in the habit of doing. One of my, one of my friends said this yesterday. He said, uh, you want to know your future? Look at your friends. Uh, your friends, you show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Who are you hanging out with? Are the people that you're hanging out with helping you to move towards Christ? If they're not, and you're not spiritually able to lead them to Christ, then you got to seriously think about what is the priority in your life. During this season of your life, maybe you need to pull away from those people and get yourself deeply immersed, embedded into a community that's going to help you to grow so that you can experience everything that God wants for you. Hey, think about it. Think about it. Right, do we really want restoration enough to make these hard choices? Because oftentimes, the distraction, the hindrance, it's not only bad things, it's good things. It's people. People that we thought were going to help us. But they're not really. That's the second thing. We've got to move towards God despite the distractions. Last thing that we see, uh, restoration requires knowing and living the Word of God. 
So chapters 1 through 6 talk about the restoration of the temple. They fight, 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 despite the distractions. Ultimately, for 15 years, they have to stop rebuilding. 15 years later, they rebuild it. The temple is done, chapter 6. And we come to chapter 7. It's not just that the temple has been restored now, but they need a restoration of the heart. And so it's not a kingly Zerubbabel. It's a priest named Ezra that God sends to lead the people to restore the hearts of the people of God. As we get to this place, we realize something very, well, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. But first time, 50,000 went back. The second time, only 2,000. And only 2,000 go back. And Ezra leads them. This is what it says in chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 1. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sarah, he goes on, son of all these people, Verse 6, this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. King had granted him everything he asked for the hand of the Lord as God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. Verse 10, this is the most important thing here. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. If there was one thing that marked the life of Ezra, he was a man of devotion, but what was he devoted to? He was devoted to the Word of God, but what was he devoted to in regards to the Word of God? To knowing, it says to knowing, uh, to studying and observing. In other versions, it says uh, to knowing and doing the will of God and to teaching its laws and decrees. I'm going to say this again because I, <laughs> it's, it's, I know it's easy to it's kind of because it's not pithy, it's not cool. It's just, it's just restoration requires knowing and living the Word of God. And I know it's easy for you to say, okay, I understand the first two parts, restoration, I need to get up from where I am, I need to move towards God despite distractions, but you've got to understand this, that we will not experience spiritual restoration unless we know the Word of God and unless we live the Word of God. I'm saying that again, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm trying to make it as simple for us to understand because a lot of us don't really believe this. A lot of us don't really believe this. I'll tell you what we believe. We believe that I can experience restoration apart from the Word of God just as long as I come to church every Sunday. I can experience restoration apart from the knowing and living the Word of God as long as I go to that retreat, go to that revival meeting, go to house church, have good Christian friends. We think that alone is going to restore us. But we will never, ever, ever experience genuine restoration of our heart unless we know and live the word of God. There's no two ways about it. You see, in our day, we're living in the most biblically illiterate generation of our time. Can we just be frank about it? 1950s, you've heard this before, non-Christians knew more Bible verses in the 1950s than we Christians know today. That's kind of sad, isn't it? And there's a reason for the spiritual poverty in our nation. I'm not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not downplaying the good things that are happening in the church throughout the world. 
I'm not downplaying what God is doing amongst the church. There are some really good things that are going on. But I'll tell you that it will never be spiritual restoration unless the word of God is known, is taught, is lived by the people of God. See, we've got a lot of good people, a lot of nice people, a lot of talented people, a lot of passionate people, a lot of visionary people, a lot of gifted people. But the sad thing is we don't have a lot of people who really know the word of God. And we will never find spiritual restoration apart from the word of God. And please don't ignore this teaching. Please don't ignore this. We need to know the word of God. We need to know the word of God. All of the social ills in our world happen because we either don't know or don't live the word of God. Human trafficking, because we don't know, live the word of God. Pornography, because we don't know or live out the word of God. Homosexuality. We, we finished our Harvest 201, 12 weeks of 201. And the, I mean, several things that we focus on in that class. The first thing that I want everyone to go is walk out of their feeling. They're completely assured of their salvation because of grace alone, because of Christ. But we get into the word of God and we get deep into the word of God to not only know it, but to live out the word of God. And one of the books of the Bible that we're reading together was a book of Romans. And we, I got one student, he's 70 years old, hungry for the word of God. And as he's reading through Romans, reading through Romans 1, he said, for the first time, I read that homosexuality was a sin. I never knew this before. And he said to me, why is it if it's clearly stated in Scripture that people think it's not a sin? My first thought was after 70 years being in the church, your first time knowing that, that is wild. But I basically said it's because people either don't know the word or don't live it out. That's it. If we don't know the word of God, what are we going to go by? We're going to go by either our feelings or we're going to go with the flow. And both of those are extremely, extremely uh, anti-biblical in so many ways. Such that, so much that in Romans 12 too, it says, don't be conformed to the patterns of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind because the flow of the world is going to lead you further and further and further away from God. We follow our feelings then. Well, these people are nice. They love people the same gender. Just let them love who they want to love. We do so to their pain and to their destruction and to their torment. Because when we go against the word of God, you, you know, we, we say this a lot, it's taking a fish out of water. We think, well, you know what? This is the word of God. It tells them that this is how they ought to live, right? Right relationship with God, right relationship with people. Homosexuality is out of those bounds, but they don't want to be bound by the word of God. So I'm going to take them outside of the bounds and put them in freedom. What, what are we doing? We're taking a fish out of water. That's not freedom. It's death. It's taking a train off of its tracks. Train wants to be free. You take it off the tracks. It's not freedom. It's death. Same thing with us. Take us outside of the will of God, outside of the word of God. We're not free. That's going to be the quickest path into exile, into hurt, into pain, into destruction. And so many people are living that way because they don't know or they don't live the word of God. We want to experience restoration, y'all. We've got to know the word of God. Because if we don't, If our Bible remains a dusty book on a shelf, a dusty book will always lead to a dirty life. You know this. Because sin will keep us from this book, but this book will keep us from sin. And if we're staying away from the word of God, 
then it's probably probably because we're moving towards living in a life of worldliness that is apart from the life that God's called us to live. I know that uh, this may require us to make changes if you really want to live this out. But I, I'm okay saying these things. Because it's not my, I'm not making this stuff up. This is what God's word is saying. Right? There's an issue with it. It's an issue with God's word. This is what he's saying. I want spiritual restoration. I want that for you. I want that for all of us who feel like we're in exile. We look at our lives. We, we, we feel like our life is in ruins. There once was a beautiful temple here, but it's not anymore because of the choices I've made, because of the sins that I've committed. I want restoration for you. I want you to, embe- uh, to experience this. I want you to embrace this. I want you to know this. The same people that came and we sat at Starbucks, sat at Panera and talked about the, the devastation of life. I want to hear stories of how it's, it's, it's different because of the word of God. And how you're experiencing healing and freedom and restoration from the things that used to enslave you. Because of a renewed relationship with God. In Ezra chapter 9, it tells us that there's some very difficult things that happened as a result of Ezra's teaching. See, what had happened was that there were people living in Judah who had begun to intermarry with people of other uh, ethnicities. And it's not that they were of other ethnicities that was the issue with God. In fact, he's fine with that. It was the fact that they were marrying people of other religions, and these other religions were leading them astray. And so Ezra says, let's think about what we need to do. As he read the word of God to them, they went home, they fasted, they prayed, they came back, and Ezra says, you know what? Here's the deal. Everyone who has started families with people of unbelieving nations need to leave those families behind in order to walk with God. This is hard stuff. The people say, because this is what God tells us to do. We're going to do it. We're going to follow the word of God. Because you see, God doesn't always say to do that. He usually he doesn't. If we, if we married a non-believer, he doesn't say leave them behind. But in this particular moment in redemptive history, what was at stake was the people of God. The remnant had become tainted and they were following other gods. I think this is what's at stake here. And they make this very difficult decision and through that, restoration begins to come through Ezra. I would encourage you to read this, to read the book of Ezra as you go home, um, to read through it. It's only 12 chapters. It's very short. But one thing you'll notice as you read through the book of Ezra, many, many times, one thing that you'll, re- you'll realize is that restoration of the people of God was the responsibility of God himself. And what do I mean by that? In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to put a proclamation throughout his realm saying that the only reason they went back to the land to restore was because God put it in the heart of the king. You look at chapter 6, verse 22, you see the same thing happening. Chapter 6, verse 22, it says, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work 
on the house of God, the God of Israel. Right? He changed the mind, the heart of Darius. And then in chapter 7, verse 23, we see the same, uh, 27, we see the same thing. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. The Persian king, Artaxerxes, God put it in his heart. God is turning the hearts of people in order that restoration could be made possible. In order that one from the kingly line could go forth, one from the priestly line could go forth, because in order to be restored, God needed to use both a king and a priest. The problem was, those Zerubbabel came from the line of the kings. He wasn't actually a king. They didn't have a king at that time. He played the figurehead, but he couldn't do the thing that a king could do. Ezra was a priest, no doubt. And he brought reform, but it was short-lived. In just a few years, they'd go back to their sin. What's the point of Ezra then? That restoration is possible. That's what he's saying. Then that God will take full responsibility of the restoration of his people. What do we do in the absence of Zerubbabel, in the absence of Ezra today? That's why God would send the truest king, the king of all kings, who would not only demand that we lay down his life, but he's the one who would lay down his life for his subjects. That same Jesus would fulfill the role of a priest. Not only a priest who would be the mediator between God and sinful humanity, but he, the priest, would actually become the sacrifice. In the same area that the temple was erected, on that mountain called Calvary, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the priest above all priests, would give his life to take the punishment for those who deserved it, in order to give us the restoration that we didn't deserve. See, Jesus is the reason why you and I can be restored. Jesus is the reason why I can look in the eyes of someone sitting at Panera and say, yes, you can be restored. Yes, you can be restored, no matter how devastated your life might be. Listen, it doesn't matter how dark your past has been. Because of Jesus, you can be restored. It doesn't matter how far in exile you've been. Doesn't matter how long you've been there. Doesn't matter how dark your situation. Doesn't matter the mistakes that you made. Doesn't matter how much you've hurt yourself, how much you've hurt other people. Because of Jesus, you can be restored. You can be forgiven. You can be brought back home into the embrace of God. He wants to do it. He paid the price in order for you to do that, for you to be restored. The question is, do you want it? Do you want it? Do you want it more than your comfort? Do you want it more than your sin? Do you want it more than your friends? Do you want what he has for you? Because if you do and you move towards him, I promise you he'll give it to you. That's what he's holding out for you and me today. Let's pray. To those of us who are living in the midst of Babylon, trying to be faithful, longing for renewal, longing for restoration. Today, the restoring hand of God, the restoring heart of God, opens up a door and says, hey, you can go home. You can come home.
can come home to the place where you can be restored. Do you want that? Will you be one of those faithful remnant, the minority group? It says, though none go with me, still I will follow. Even if I'm the only one, still I'll go. Even if it means that my friends end up hating me, I'll follow. Even if it means me making some hard choices, I'll follow. Because I know that what you have for me is better than what I have right now. Can we come to the Lord right now and pray? Say, Lord, I want you. I need you. More than, and maybe that's it. Maybe it's more than you wanting God. You realize that you need him. Change begins when the pain of staying the same outweighs the pain to change. And maybe you don't want God right now. You don't want him, but you need him. You know that you need him because you can't go on this way. It's not just for those who outwardly people look at your life and see it in ruins. It's for those who everyone looks at your life and it looks fine. But inwardly, you know that you're living in ruins. Saying, would you come back? Because I want to restore you. Would you get up and move towards me? Would you move towards me despite the distractions? And would you make it a commitment to know and live the word of God? Would you do that? Let's pray together for a couple moments. Saying, Lord, I need restoration. After we pray for a couple moments on our own, I'm just going to ask um, if there's anyone who wants to make a decision today to say, Lord, I need to turn back to you in restoration. Wherever we're at, I'm not going to ask you to stand up or come to the front or anything like that, but just as a sign of commitment that you make between you and God, I'm going to um, ask you to uh, show that by raising your hand. Not right now, but just in a few moments as we pray. Allow God to work in your heart. And as you do know that there's an enemy of our soul who wants to keep us in exile. And Satan wants to keep you in sin, in slavery, in bondage, to sex, to drugs, to relationships, to whatever it is. He'll fight against the desire of God in you. I encourage you, can you rise up and fight? God will help you to overcome your weakness so that you can stand up and fight. You weren't meant to be defeated. You are more than a conqueror in Christ. This is our inheritance in Jesus because of the shed blood of Christ. Okay, let's pray for a minute or so. Uh, give us an invitation for us to seek the God of restoration. All right, let's pray together for a moment. just from where you are I'm not even gonna you know I don't need to see you or anything just as a sign that God I want restoration in my life it's a sign between you and God no one's looking at you I just encourage you to 
put your palms up and it's just a sign of receiving from God. Lord, I need your restoration. I want to move towards you. Just say, Lord, I need more of you. Fill me with your restoring touch. I just pray, Lord, I commit myself, commit myself to moving towards you this week. I can't do it without you, and I don't want to stay where I am right now. Lord, help me. Lord, restore me. Just pray that simple prayer of responding to his invitation. Lord, I hear you calling. I want to move towards you now. So just pray that to the Lord. imagine and vision that we are a group of uh, 150 exiles returning from Babylon together, that we are the people who want to build the walls again. We are the people that want to be restored. I think there must have been people in Babylon who wanted to go but didn't, wanted to go and saw the exiles leaving, but they were torn between going and leaving, but going and staying, but there are some people who looked at their friend and said, I'll go if you go. They said, let's go together. And they marched those 900 miles together. I like to think that we're those people, that we want to be restorers of broken hearts. We want to be restorers of what was lost. We want to be restorers of the work of God in us. And we need to do it together. So can you just put your hand on the shoulder or the back on the, hold the hand of the person next to you? Let's pray, Lord, revive, restore my brother. Wherever there's brokenness, wherever there are ruins, raise them to life. Strengthen them, restore them for the beauty of your name. Lord, would you renew and would you restore my brother, restore my sister now. Let's pray for one another. You can pray out loud if you want. You don't have to be afraid to do that. Let's pray. Let's bless one another, be agents of restoration. Maybe your prayer right now will unlock a door within the heart of your friend. Unlock the door of the heart of the person next to you in order that they might receive more of God right now. Let's pray for each other for a moment, and then I'll pray for us. Jesus, we need you, Lord God. I pray that the restoring hand of God would be over each of our people, Lord God. Our praise team members, our congregation, for for Jolene, for James, for John, for Paul, for Solomon, for Kenny. Lord, that you would move within us, Lord God, and you would stir us, Lord God. You would open up doors in us, that you would open up all the restoration, Lord God, of God, the work of restoration within us. Lord, we're desperately in need of you. Lord, we're deeply in need of you. God, we can't live without you, Lord God. We may pretend we can. We may think we can. We may act like we can. We might believe we can. We might have lived on our own, seemingly apart from you, but we need you, Lord God. Lord, that you would restore people. Save us, Lord. Set us apart from you. Restore us and turn us back. Jesus, that you would do your work in us, Lord God.
Father in heaven, we declare our, our need for you. We thank you, Father, that though the story of Ezra seems to be a story of just a history book, we're keen to the point to the fact that, God, all of history belongs to you, and the history books are a storybook of answered prayer and of your sovereignty over the nations. And the history of the world is a history of your story and how it's all about you. And as we stand here in 2014, longing for restoration within our hearts, within our lives, within our church in every way, Father, we pray that you would be the God of our history as well, and you would continue to make yourself known, that you would do the restoring work of God in us, in order that in us and through us, many people would see the beauty and the glory and the worth of God. Would you continue to mold us and make us and help us to be a restored church, a restored people who would honor you in everything that we are. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.